Let's have God's Word now open us up. We'll be looking at James chapter 5. And we'll read verses 7 to 12. James 5, 7 to 12. Please all rise for the reading of God's Word. This is God speaking. He gives to us his words. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Our Lord, you are compassionate and merciful. We pray that this morning, as we hear the preaching of your word, it would transform us. Would you give to us patience And Lord, would you continue to show your steadfast love unto us, that we may wait as we look forward to the coming when you will come again, wipe away every tear, and make all things new. We pray this in faith in his name. Amen. Uh, I'd like to begin this morning by turning our attention to the 73rd Psalm. Here we see how the psalmist confesses his frustration In some ways, he vents with seeing how those who do not follow God nor care about faithfulness seem to prosper. The ones he will call the arrogant or the wicked, he observes and he sees in the world that those who are not faithful to God, those who do not know God, somehow seem to be living a life that is perhaps more satisfying, happy, and delicious fulfilling than the things that he is experiencing now. The psalmist here, in many ways, if I can project some of our experience that relate, is scrolling through social media, and he's discouraged by how people seem to be so happy, so full of glee, yet neglect God. In some ways, he is envious of the arrogant and feels unsatisfied with the portion that God has given to him. And perhaps, as we have heard in last week's sermon, he is thinking to himself, what if I left the Lord's presence? What if today or tomorrow I went to such and such a place, traded and made a profit? Would my life be better? How many of us can relate? 
And so before we get into the text today, as James addresses patience and suffering, I want us to relate and see a little bit how the psalmist pours out his heart before the Lord. So we'll look at sections of Psalm 73. Follow along with me. We're going to begin with verse 2. The psalmist says, But as for me, my feet had nearly stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In some ways here, the psalmist is thinking, was this all for vain? Why is it that I am trying to keep my heart clean, to be innocent, to be faithful, to be holy and set apart? Yet when I look in the world, everyone seems to be prospering but me. Some of you guys are older, Korean men. I know your internal voice might be something like that. He continues, verse 16 to 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. You know, many of us are perplexed. We're in that moment of, why is my life like this as a Christian? Why are other people's lives, why does it seem so much better? And in many ways, it's a wearisome task to try to understand that, to try to count, to compare The psalmist has experienced the same thing. It was a wearisome task. Until when? Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their ways. Once he came before the Lord with his frustration, with his grumbling, things started to become clear in the presence of God. Verse 21, he continues, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. I'm ashamed to say that this verse comes to my mind so often in the seasons where I am also embittered and pricked at heart and ask God, why isn't my life as amazing as the people that I see? I was like a beast toward you, the psalmist writes, when I was embittered, pricked in heart, like a brutish, ignorant beast says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. There's a turnaround point here. Now, as he comes into the sanctuary of the Lord, as he discerns his life and the life of the arrogant and the wicked, it's becoming clear to him. He's becoming less of a brutish, ignorant beast His heart is not hardened, and he's starting to realize that God is with him. He is with God. There is nothing else on heaven or earth that he would rather have besides God. And he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The strength of my heart and my portion, my lot, forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, my safe place, my hiding place, the place in which I can stand under pressure, the place in which I may be steadfast. 
I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. And so we hear now that it's very evident, oftentimes like the psalmist, when we feel embittered and pricked and heart, it is probably because we have drifted far from the Lord. It's only in his presence, as we take refuge in him, that things become clear. That the way of the arrogant, the way of the wicked, though it may prosper for a short time, do not have the strength and the portion of the Lord. So then let us consider and have an honest time of reflection, you and I, this morning. What if, a Christ, what if as Christians our life goal isn't only to find or work towards security, comfort, and happiness? What if as Christian parents our ultimate goal isn't to provide security, comfort, and opportunities for our children? What if instead we are to seek out God's glory and enjoy Him in such a way that we can sing in the light of struggles, we can dance in the darkness, remain steadfast under sufferings? What if our goal as parents is to simply see our children become more and more like Jesus, the perfect Son of God? What if our life's ultimate goal here on earth in the present reality day to day is simply to be a faithful child of God? This is easy for me to lose sight of, and I'm sure many of us can confess the same. David Powelson, who has now passed away, but regarded as a very loving and tender and wise biblical counselor, he was also my professor. I had the privilege to, as they say, sit under his feet. He uses this term called x-ray questions, and it's a way to ask questions to see what is going on at the deeper level of our hearts. And he says x-ray questions allow us to really examine and know what we truly believe. And so I have a few x-ray questions to just throw out there as we continue and move forward this morning. Why do we follow Jesus? Simply to have spiritual insurance for the afterlife? What do we expect from God? Simply to have a good and happy life where we get what we want? Are we truly living by faith? Or are we living by sight of all that we see in this world? Staggering, stammering, and tripping as we grasp for things that will only fade. Carl Truman writes in his book, Strange New World. He's a a church history professor, um, as well as a scholar, And this is what he writes as he examines the culture of our day and as Christians our engagement of it. This also connects to another way in which the church has become more akin to the world than she often realizes. The cult of personal happiness. Now there's nothing wrong with being happy, of course. But the nature of happiness has changed over the years to being akin to an inner sense of psychological well-being. Let me read that. But again, the nature of happiness has changed over the years to being akin 
to an inner sense of psychological well-being. And so if you're not happy, if you don't feel happy, you feel as though you are not well, you are not healthy, there is something wrong with you. Continuing, once we start thinking of happiness in those terms, the vision of the Christian life laid out in Paul's letter, particularly 2 Corinthians, becomes incomprehensible. What he's saying is if we adopt this world view, this world culture, that happiness is a God-given right of our inner sense of well-being, and if we seek out happiness in such a way where, where we think that'll make our sick hearts well, what starts to happen is when we come to the Bible, when we come to church, when we come to God, when we hear His commandments, when we hear about His grace and what obedience and faithfulness looks like, it becomes incomprehensible. In other words, it becomes incomputable to what we are hearing and learning and thinking, yet what we are desiring. He continues, we may not all be explicitly committed to the prosperity gospel, but many of us think of divine blessing in terms of our individual happiness. That is a result of the psychological, therapeutic culture seeping into our Christianity. And I find that this is true in my life. I find that this is true as I speak with other young men and women. And I find that this is true as I sit down and speak with older men and women. That happiness to some degree has become the core chief end of man. But friends then we have to ask ourselves, why are we following Jesus? What is it do we actually believe about God? Again, James is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. With many parallels to our own experience, the believers are scattered over the lands. They're divided by social class. There's disparity in wealth. Much like the psalmist and much like us as we scroll and observe and look through, whether it be social media or out there into the world, Only seeing a part of the reality, the people here that James is writing to have lost grip on the full reality. And they too are thinking as they're suffering and struggling, why is my life like this, even though I follow God? Something is not computing. In some ways, as the people of old are also seeking happiness and satisfaction and purpose and fulfillment, they are struggling to compute these two natures of the world and of what God says about His people as we follow Him. He promises us many things, the least of which is happiness as the world would offer it. But I want to be clear that as James is writing to the church, there wasn't a specific trial or trouble, but simply the present reality of living in a sin-fallen world where they are more often than not simply just tired and afraid. How many of us can relate? There's not perhaps a particular trial or temptation or trouble in our life, but for some reason in the day-to-day living of it, in the tiredness of it, in the fear of the future... We bear this weight of suffering as Christians, trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian as we live in this world, tired and scared. Like you and I, they were struggling to grasp the heavy realities of joy and the invisible nature of hope. You know, from... 
From time to time, I wrestle with the, I wrestle with being obedient to the call to the pastorate. If you ever wonder, do pastors ever think about quitting? Yes, they do. Do pastors ever wonder if their faith is real? Yes, we do. We need to seek God's affirmation not only to the job of the pastorate, but even to the cross of Christ. We struggle, we doubt. But in the, I'm in a particular season where I've been wrestling, and so this passage hits so personally to me, and, I, and I've actually had to spend a lot of time taking some things out and editing it so I don't scare you too much. You know, it dawned on me that in just 10 years that my oldest son will be in college. In 10 years. Although I'm still young, I'm at an age where I realize 10 years is short. And hopefully a few years after that, my other two children will follow. And I imagine, if Lord willing, they would get married have children. And at the same time, as the timeline progresses, of course, my parents will age and undoubtedly their health will waver as well. And as I look down 10 years, I realize that I will be a main support to not only the generation that is coming after me, but the one that has come before. And the weight and the pressure and the desire to give them all that I can with the same realization that I am so limited in the worldly sense, discouraged me so much. That's why I brought up the introduction. I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, and honestly, if I think about my children, I want to be able to pay for their college, I want to pay for an extravagant wedding, I want to send them on vacation, I want to buy them nice things, I want to get them a house, I want to be able to cover any hospital medical bills for my parents, I want to show them how to rest, take them on vacation, take them to Hawaii, Let them experience food they've never had. I want to give them so much. I want to give them so much of this world. I think think the Koreans refer to this as as yokshim, as this kind of greed. Abajaya yokshim, adere yokshim. There is this type of greed you have on behalf of your loved ones, this desire to want to give them everything. And personally, I realized as a pastor... Although I am supported and loved very well by you guys, I can't give them the level of extravagance that I so desire. It had to come back to realize in a humble and less arrogant way that all those things the Lord can provide if he desires. You know, when I first wrestled with the call to the pastorate in my early 20s, my biggest struggle was, God, if I become a pastor, who will take care of my parents? Who will take care of my future children? And for eight months, day in and day out, I wrestled with, God, if I'm obedient to you, who is going to take care of them? And the Lord gave me peace through probably one of the most simplest answers, (laughs) as he often does. When I came into the sanctuary of the Lord, I was able to discern my own stupidity and ignorance. He said, I will. And that's the truth I'm struggling to accept today. So it's in light of this daily struggle, it's in light of this day-to-day difficulty that James writes. In the context of suffering, the imperative command to be patient occurs twice here. Verse 7, verse 8. The root word for patience occurs four different times. And related to that usage, the idea of remaining steadfast happens three times. 
So on my count, that's seven times that the same idea is being repeated in these short verses. James says, be patient, be patient, be steadfast. So the main message James is communicating in the context of the Christian's everyday struggle, everyday suffering, is that of patience and steadfastness. But here's one thing I want to make very clear. In the light of suffering... The command to be patient and steadfast would be utterly graceless unless we see how that is connected to God's compassion and mercy as seen in verse 11. This is our task today to not only hear the command to be patient, but to know the gracious God that gives it, the compassionate God that gives it, the merciful God that says it, and ultimately follow in obedience. I'm sorry, that was just the introduction, but the best introductions are long, right? If you've you've ever watched a 007 movie, you jump into it, you don't realize, after 40 minutes of action, you're like, what? You're like, that was the introduction? Let's let's move forward. I promise you, we, we are well more than halfway, but I I wanted to set that up in such a way where we can have the categories and, and we can have the, 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 the grit to, to cling on to what's about to be said. So, so James says be patient, right? And, 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 and this is the main point today. We can be patient in light of suffering because two reasons. We'll see two reasons in the text. First, because the Lord is at hand. And second, because we have a righteous judge. Very quickly again, we can be patient in light of suffering because the Lord is at hand. And because we have a righteous judge. Let's get into it. Verse 7 through 8. We'll look at it again. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He's, he's, he, he, he's repeating Right? It's this circularness. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Look at the farmer. Look at how he waits. So you too be patient because the Lord is coming. He says it twice here. He says, see how the farmer waits. And I love how James immediately appeals to what people can observe. Right, Because when you're struggling, when you're suffering, logic is not going to help. When you sit down with someone who's suffering, or if you are suffering, someone sits there and says, hey, think about this. Hey, what do you, you know, do you really think that doesn't work? Logic does not compute in a moment of suffering where you're emotionally broken, when you're just trying to move forward. And so James gives this concrete ability to the sufferer. He says, see the farmer. Look out. He's, he's appealing to their senses now. He says, you look. Look at the farmer. See how he patiently waits for the early and the late rains. I think there is something significant here because much of what the people are seeing and observing, right, are the arrogant and the wicked who are turning quick profits, who are having fast gains, who are oppressing them, who are living faithlessly, who are living outside of God's presence. And as they examine, as they look, as they scroll, it might appear to them that that is all of reality. But James says, see, look also at the farmer. And learn from that. Turn your eyes to the farmer. 
Don't look at just the prideful and arrogant. Yeah, it might seem like they're doing well for now, but, but, but turn now your eyes to the farmer. It's, it's almost a spiritual discipline of the sensories, isn't it? And he says, look how the farmer waits for the fruit, not only in the early rains, but the late rains. The farmer is patient until the harvest is full from the start to the finish. A commentator in the ESV study Bible says this. I can't say it any better, so I'll give it to you just like this as a quote. The early and the late rains describe the Palestine, the Palestinian climate in which the autumn rain occurs just after sowing and the spring rains just before harvest. So the early and late rains, what they're talking about is here, is the farmer waits in the autumn time, right after all the seeds were put in, the early rain comes, it waters. But the difficult thing is to wait throughout all the months until the spring rain, right before the harvest, before you can collect everything. Commentator continues, even though three-fourths of Palestine's rain fell from December to February, these two rains were the most crucial. The early rain in autumn and the late rain in spring. The time of sowing and the time of reaping. James uses this illustration to point to the nature of Christ's first and second coming. All throughout the Old Testament, the seeds of the gospel were sown, were scattered, as you will. Then Jesus came like the autumn rain. He watered, He ministered, He healed, He preached that the kingdom is near, the kingdom is at hand. And what James is essentially saying to the church here as they fix their eyes on the farmer is to realize and to see that here there is an early rain, there is something happening, but if you wait and be patient at the second rain in the spring when the Lord comes again, He will collect His harvest. It is in the late rain where everything will make sense, where all the fruit will bear, where the first fruit who is Christ will come and declare that all the other fruit in the harvest belong to Him, and He will reap what He has sown. He's saying, church, we know the early rain. We know that Christ has come, had came. He lived a life of obedience we could not. He was sinless, he was crucified, he was buried, and then the third day he rose again, to which he showed himself to the disciples, having breakfast with them, ministering to them, and then he ascended into heaven, where he sat down now at the right hand of God, and at the same time we know as he is there, he has prepared a room for you and I, and as he left, he says, I will return, and we know that the New Testament is scattered and filled with his return. And so James is saying, wait, be patient. Look at the farmer. Look at Christ. The spring rain will come. He will come again. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Why? And the things of earth will grow slowly dim in the light of his glory and grace. Without Jesus, when we are far from him, everything in this world looks so shiny and glorious and precious. But in the light of Christ, they are all dim in comparison. James says, look at the farmer. Be patient. 
He says, establish your hearts. Establish meaning to fix firmly, to direct it towards, to prop up, to strengthen, to buttress, to establish, to fortify your hearts. Make firm, make strong, make immovable your hearts on this truth, James says. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. Now this is a loaded phrase in the Bible. The Lord is at hand. And a word that is often used and expounded is parousia. The presence of God is at hand. Again here, James has in his mind... The, the coming of Jesus, his return, where he will wipe away every tear, where he will make all things new, where there will be no more sickness, no more suffering, where there will be no disparity of wealth, but we will all be made rich in the glories of heaven, where Jesus himself will be the sun and the light that guides us. James has in mind that last day, that spring rain as he sits there outside in the harvest. And James is saying... The Lord is at hand. His presence, the parousia, it's coming. It's coming. His physical arrival, the Lord is at hand. Yes, the Lord is here now. Yes, when we call upon Him and enter into prayer, we feel His presence. But James is saying, when He returns, He will literally be here. His presence will be here. And He's announcing His coming. And James is, by saying the Lord is at hand, he is announcing his, his advent. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Be patient. The Lord is coming. Be patient. The Lord is coming. Be patient. His presence, his presence, his presence will be here. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence, parousia, to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousand besides. James is saying, establish your hearts, fortify it, strengthen it in the Lord. Be patient, be patient. Think of the spring rain when Jesus will return. The great Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, who lived a long life filled with many sufferings and ailments, when asked how he managed to stay faithful through all of, all of life's struggles, he answered, with the fact that he would meditate on heaven for 30 minutes a day. Meaning in the day-to-day sufferings as a Christian, in the day-to-day, moment-by-moment, casual, almost mundane movement of life, where it's so easy to forget that this is just momentary, that I am just a mist, he would reflect daily for 30 minutes on heaven, on eternity. And if I could put words in his mouth, perhaps the spring rain that is coming. I hope we think differently every time we see the rain outside, that we would be reminded he is coming. And so we can be patient, brothers and sisters, beloved, in the light of suffering, because the Lord is at hand. He is coming. Second, and lastly, verse five, verse 9 through 11, look with me. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. 
how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Here we find another clear imperative and command. After the twice repeated command to be patient, James says, do not grumble against one another. Why? We know why. When we are suffering, the easiest thing to do is grumble against one another, judge one another, and grumble about one another. Grumbling, complaining. James uses the word grumbling perhaps so that we would call into remembrance the Israelites in the wilderness. Grumbling so we may remember during the time of exile how people grumbled against the prophets, the leaders, the servants of God who spoke His word. How the people grumbled over and over and over and over. How they were divided in their grumbling. How they were scattered in their grumbling. How how they hurt one another in their grumbling. Yeah, it's easy for me to grumble in this season. It's easy for me to grumble about the church, to grumble about the things that I'm not satisfied with. But James says, hey, I know it's hard. Be patient. And by saying do not grumble against one another, he's actually saying love one another. Suffer patiently together. If I can put the positive light on it, then encourage one another as we are suffering. Encourage one another through patience. Establish your hearts alongside each other. You know, the summer football camp in high school uh, in August, in the summer heat, was one of the toughest things I've experienced. Maybe the man I am today. We would do two-a-days, practice in full pads in the summer heat. In between, we would lift weights, watch film, And we would even be punished. And so if you missed a play during film, they would jot down how many pluses and minuses you had, and they would give what they call bellies. You would have to run 10 yards, hit the ground, get up, run 10 yards. And so you got bellies according to yardage. I had a poor teammate who had 1,000 yards of bellies, which is damn near impossible to do. All that to say... It was hard. And I remember in the locker room, we would say something to the effect to one another of complaining is contagious. So when a teammate would start complaining, we would stop him and say, hey, man, be careful. That's contagious. That's contagious. Grumbling is contagious. Grumbling is a spark that can set a whole forest ablaze and defy the church of Christ. So James says, do not grumble at one another so that you may not be judged because the judge is standing at the door. And here James seems to still be referring to Jesus' second coming. We can hear echoes of, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Yet when Christ returns in the late rain of the spring, he stands at the door as judge. And this ought to give us some measure of comfort because what we're being told is that he knows. He knows what's going on. He sees the arrogant and the wicked prospering. He sees how you've been treated. He knows how unfair it can be. He sees the short end of the stick that you often get. He knows. He sees. He hears it all. He is judge. He is your righteous judge. So James says, don't grumble, don't fret. 
when the judge comes, everything will be sorted out. The mess will be cleaned up. And although it seems like a long time and a hard time, when he comes, we'll look back and realize it was just a short time. And he who knows everything, like a parent who can hear their children bickering and arguing in the basement, you know what's going on. And when Jesus comes and he stands at the door, he's going to let himself in. And he's going to judge all those who are wicked, who are arrogant, who are self-sustaining, who neglect, who could care less about God. Very quickly, if you don't know the story of Job, this week's homework for you is to read through the book of Job. If I can just give it to you in a nutshell, he was a man who had everything, then he lost everything. Yet he never gave up faith in God. Even through his pricked and embittered heart, we find that he ends up going back to the Lord, the sanctuary of God, to discern his ways. Having lost all his wealth, his land, his children, his wife, his friends, Job truly learns to sing, You give and take away, you give and take away, my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Church, is the Christian life about you being happy? I'm afraid it's not. And if that is the mentality in which we have engaged the word of God and the cross of Christ, it's no wonder we are frustrated. It's of no wonder we cannot comprehend the truth of Scripture. It's no wonder we have a dissonance and a dissatisfaction with God. James said, look at all the prophets of the old. Look at Job. Look how they were steadfast. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, writes, James gave them real-life examples of those who shone in the midst of adversary because he knew that suffering people had little patience with theory or fiction. Real stories bring real comfort. Friends, share your stories with one another. Do not grumble. Be patient. Build one another up. Let me conclude with this. The conclusion. In verse 12 he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. I'm going to parallel that with Matthew here, Matthew 5. Let what you say be simple, yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the devil. Friends, in in the midst of suffering, one of the easiest things to do is grumble. The second easiest thing is to let go of all of our commitments. You know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about. It's so easy to reschedule. But rescheduling is the hardest thing to do. It's easy to say, I need a season of rest. But truly, you know, you're not going to really engage with the things that need to be sorted out. It's too easy to grumble. And it's too easy to say yes, no, and go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And James says, I know it's hard. I know sometimes you regret making a commitment. I know sometimes it's difficult to follow through. But he says, let us be simple people with one another. To say yes and to say no. Anything more comes from calculating self-preservation. 
Now, I don't have too much time to get into this. This is different from overcommitment. If that's your issue, that, that's something else, and Pastor Stephen will help you with that later. The friends here, officers of the church, elders, deacons, pastors, servant leaders, volunteers, participants of community group, if you made a commitment before the Lord, follow through before the Lord. Whatever it may be, let your yes be yes and your no be no. This, this, this will be my last word. In, 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 in verse 11, he says, Behold, this is important here. This is going to tie it all together, so stay with me. Three more minutes, I ask you. Three more minutes. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. It, it's not the wealthy who are blessed. It's not the ones who give into the world that are blessed. It's not the arrogant who turns a prophet for a short while who are blessed. It is not the one who is strategic and plans and makes all these investments that are blessed. It is not the one who travels and see the world that is blessed. It's not the one who has curated for themselves the perfect life that is blessed. Then who? James says, behold, behold, Hanei. Well, actually, that's Hebrew, sorry. He says, behold. I forget what behold is in Greek. We'll look it up later. He says, behold. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Meaning those who have established their hearts in the Lord. Those who stayed under suffering. Those who trusted in the Lord's judgment. Those who waited for the late spring rains. Those who waited for Christ's return. So I want to go back to Carl Truman's quote, just a portion here. Many of us think of divine blessing in terms of individual happiness. Yeah, that, that was a mistake I made. Many of us think of divine blessing from God in terms of our own individual happiness. But, but, but what the Bible is saying here is, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. So divine blessing doesn't have to do with our individualistic happiness, although God wants us to be happy, although He wants us to find joy, although He doesn't simply call us to a, a, just a, a, a dramatic, dark-like life of suffering. But God in His love, blesses us so that we may remain steadfast in this world as we wait for Him. It has to do, blessing has to do with being able to remain, to establish, to be patient for the parousia, for the presence of Christ to return. In light of suffering, the blessed are the ones who patiently wait upon the Lord, knowing that He is at hand, knowing that He is a righteous judge. Kent Hughes says, Notice that it says blessed, not happy. For what is meant here is not the subjective, emotional state of happiness, but the objective, unalterable approval and reward of God. The smile of God rests upon such a life. Blessedness is not receiving things. Blessedness is... Being close to God in His presence and waiting. So church, do you want to be blessed? Then draw near to God. Because as we heard in James 4, He will draw near to you. Blessings all mine and 10,000 besides. I always thought that meant money, comfort, things I desired. Blessings all mine with 10,000 besides. Perhaps the better blessing is to be in God's presence, to think about heaven each day for 30 minutes, to know that today is just a momentary passing moment in time, that the present suffering 
compared to the riches and the glories of all eternity is only a momentary affliction. Do you truly want to be blessed? Then let us have our main concern as Christian children of God. Let us make our main concerns for our own children be that they would be in God's presence. Let's have our prayers be filled with that longing now. Father God,